Now let's look together to the Word of God. Um, we're commanded to worship, everybody worships, but you need to worship the right thing. Worship in itself is meaningless unless you attach it to the right object. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. They either worship something outside of themselves or they worship themselves. Very often worshiping something outside of yourself is just a way to worship yourself because you projected that God into existence and that's your own personal God. It's really a projection of your own ego. Everybody worships. Everybody bows down at some shrine. Everybody has some God. Everybody has some treasure that they prize over everything else, as Josh said. Why Christ? With all the options in the world, why Jesus Christ? What are the benefits of worshiping Christ? Well, I think we know initially that He is the only Savior, and if you don't worship Christ, you end up forever in hell under divine sentence. And hell is forever because you go to hell sinful and you remain sinful forever, so you can never pay for your sins because you keep doing them in hell forever. That's why it's forever, because there's no character change possible. And so you just project that same sinfulness everlastingly. There's only one way to escape that, and that's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only Savior, the only Redeemer. There is no salvation apart from Him. So we could look at why Christ from that standpoint. That's a negative standpoint. We could say, well, <laughs> Christ saves us from hell, and that's, that's very legitimate. By the way, Jesus talked a lot more about hell than He did about heaven. And Jesus talked more about hell than all the other writers of the Bible. Hell was on His mind. And He kept warning people to avoid hell. And then He kept saying, and there's only one way, and it's through Me, and it's by faith, and through grace, and not of works. And we understand all that. That's the Christian gospel. People say, well, that's very narrow. Right, it's very narrow, but it just happens to be true. Narrow is fine if it's true. Narrow is meaningless if it's not. Islam is very narrow. You worship Allah. You do everything you can to please Allah. And in pleasing Allah, you have to hate every other religion, every other god. And you also have to hate everybody who doesn't worship Allah. That's very narrow. Narrow in itself is meaningless if it's a lie. Just about every religion in the world believes it's the only one. That's built into the fabric of it. That's how you build that religion, by condemning every other one. So all religions are narrow. All religions are self-propagating for the most part. There's no virtue in narrowness unless it's true, unless it's correct. So we could approach the Christian gospel and worshiping Christ from the standpoint that it is the only way to have our sins forgiven 
and therefore be acceptable to God, be reconciled to Him, come into His presence, and live in the bliss of heaven forever. It's only through Christ. We could approach it that way from the negative that He delivers us from hell and He alone. But what I want to do as I began this morning is to approach it from a positive standpoint. So who are the most important people in the world? Who are the most important people in the world? If you were to write down a list of the most important people in the world, who, who would they be? Who would be on your list? A president, famous educator, famous scientist, great medical doctor, a, a, a profound writer, um, somebody who discovered something, invented something that changed the quality of life for the world. Who are the really important people in the world? There's only one answer to that, and it's this, Christians. You're more important than anybody else because apart from Christ, no one makes any impact on people's eternal destiny. Did you get that? Apart from being in Christ, no one can make any impact on any person's eternal destiny. You can make their life better. You can come up with things that bring creature comforts. You can come up with ways to uh, advance science, medical science, and give them long life and better comfort. You can come up with inventions that make the home better, the car better. You can come up with all kinds of things that advance the sort of temporal richness of life. But all your influence apart from Christ stops when that person dies. You have no impact beyond the grave. All the greatest kings, rulers, potentates, all of them combined have zero effect on anyone's eternity. All the presidents, all the educators, all the scientists, all the massively successful leaders in the world have no influence past the grave, zero. The only people who have an influence that is everlasting are Christians. Your impact goes beyond this life. Now let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's pick it up kind of where we were this morning, look in 1 Peter 2, and we started in verse 12, didn't we? We sort of started at the back and then we're going to go to the beginning and come through. Verse 12, 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the nations, live in the world excellently as a believer, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation is an Old Testament phrase that refers to the time when people face God. Wouldn't you like to live a life that literally turns God-haters, Christ-rejectors, and persecutors of believers into those who will glorify God in the day that they meet Him? In other words, you're making an eternal impact. My final year of uh, college, I was invited to receive some kind of football honor, and 
I went to one of the service clubs in Los Angeles, and uh, they gave me a little gold football, and I was, I don't know, player of the week or something, and they asked me to, to tell something about myself. And I had just come out of an amazing experience that had nothing to do with football. I got in a phone call from somebody who knew about me and knew I was a Christian and said, would you go to the hospital and visit a young girl named Polly Greider? You don't know her, but you might be able to help her. Would you please do that? She's in the hospital in Thousand Oaks, California. Um, I said, sure. Now remember, I'm just a college guy. So I went to the hospital, went in the room, and looked into the face of this really beautiful young girl, and she was a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. She was head cheerleader at Thousand Oaks High School. Her boyfriend had come over, and they were messing around with a gun in the backyard, and he shot her through the neck accidentally and turned her into a quadriplegic, severed her spinal column. And I looked into her face, and I don't remember my exact words, but I do remember she said to me, if I could kill myself, I would, but I can't move anything. She understood what had happened to her. So there I am standing looking into the stark reality of this young girl whose life was absolutely devastated. What impact could I have on her? And I simply said, look, it's not what happens to your body that matters, it's what happens to your soul. Let me tell you about someone who came to save your soul and give you eternal life. Leaning over the bed that day, I presented the gospel in a simple way to her and I asked her if she was willing to confess Christ as Lord and Savior after I'd gone through the gospel in some detail. She said, I have nothing else. She said, I am willing. I came back to see her again. We talked. She opened her heart to Christ. And uh, the last words that I remember her saying to me were these. You know, uh, John, I guess I'm glad this happened because if it hadn't happened, I never would have met Christ. Whoa. Whatever I thought I wanted to do with my life ended that moment. And I said, if I can live my life to have this kind of eternal impact, what else would I live for? She recovered as much as she could, remained a quad. A young Christian guy came along, loved her, married her, cared for her. Incredible story. That's eternal impact. Christians are made for crises. Not everybody is just eagerly waiting to hear what you have to say. But the people whose life and heart is prepared by God is the heart, the soil that's been tilled, ready to plant the seed. You matter infinitely. Take all the important people in the world, all the people in the news, pile them all together, collectively, all of them, thousands of them, don't matter as much as one believer who has an impact on somebody's life so that when they come to the day they face God, the day of visitation, they give Him glory.
It is something special to be a Christian. And that's what we're finding here, isn't it? So what kind of life is this that has this impact? What kind of life, to borrow the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, what kind of life is it that is a savor of life unto life, that is a fragrance of Christ unto God? What kind of life sends up an aroma into the nostrils of God? What kind of life is like, a, is, is like an offering of incense before God? What kind of life matters in heaven? Well, you know what's going on in heaven all the time, don't you? A party. What's, what's making everybody so happy in heaven? Heaven rejoices and God leads that rejoicing when one soul repents. And since someone is repenting around the world all the time, the party never stops. And God is always using believers as His instruments to bring those people to Himself. Paul said it this way, look, they can't hear without a preacher. Faith comes by hearing the message concerning Christ. Go, give that message. Go, live that message. And as they look at your life, like we talked about Kenoshi, the general in the Japanese army that ran the concentration camp, he was so moved by the very people he was killing that he came to Christ. This is a life that matters. So when you think of your Christian life, I, I know sometimes we hear the gospel only sort of against the backdrop of it's rescuing you from hell, but I want you to hear the gospel from the positive side that it's, it's making you the most important people in the world who have an eternal impact. And what are the elements that privilege us? Let's go back to our text. If you're a believer, the first thing that's true about you is you have a union with Christ. We saw that in verse 4, coming to Him. What, it, what is it to be a Christian? It isn't about believing something out there. It's about coming to Christ. Of course, believing who He is, but it, it's not just something that you believe. It's someone that you're united with. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You are one with Him. You're crucified with Him. You rise with Him. You live with Him. He lives in you. He is your life. We talked about you're in union with Christ. You are basically indivisible from Christ. I don't know where I begin and He ends and I end and He begins. I know whatever bad I do is me and whatever good I do is Him, but I can't parse it out. My impulses are a mixture of my own unredeemed flesh and His divine righteous impulses. I am this hybrid person. I have become a new creation, but I'm, I'm incarcerated in this corpse of remaining flesh. But Christ is in me, and Christ is the power in me, and Christ is the life in me, and Christ is the love in me, and Christ is the goodness in me, and Christ is the worship in me. 
Christ is the kindness in me. If you're a believer, you're in union with Christ. It's a real-life union. One way to understand it would be to say this. When you die and go to heaven, there'll be less of a change than was taken place at your conversion. Did you hear that? Death will be less of a change than your conversion. Your conversion was a transformation, a total transformation. Your death is just an elimination. The new creation was made when you were saved. It lives forever. Death for you is just the elimination of the unredeemed humanness. A big change came at salvation. You are one with Christ, united with Him forever. Secondly, we saw, back to our text real quick, that we have access to the Lord Jesus Christ. Talks about verse 5, we are a holy priesthood. We talked about only one priest, the high priest, one day a year, day of atonement, had access to God. We have access 24-7 through Christ to come boldly to the throne anytime we want. God is always ready, always to hear because we come in the name of Christ. We have constant access to the presence of God through Christ who is in us. Thirdly, we saw we have security. We have security. The end of verse 6, we're just picking up the main emphases. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. You'll never be disappointed. You put your trust in Christ. The word disappointed could be translated deceived. All the Muslims are deceived. All the Hindus are deceived. All the people caught up in any work system like Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, any other cult, they're all deceived. They've all believed lies. They're deceived right into hell, and only when they die and realize where they are will the deception be made clear. You'll never be deceived in Christ. You'll never be disappointed in Christ. Can't happen. So. As a believer, you have union with Christ, you have access to God through Christ, you have security in Christ, and we ended up by looking at verses 7 and 8 and saying you have affection for Christ. You find Him precious, starting verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe Christ is precious to you. And I closed out this morning by saying, look, I know when someone is a Christian because Christ is precious. Christ is precious, not somebody they fear, not somebody they fear. Some people have asked me through the ministry of my many years, why do I preach so much about Christ? Why do I spend eight or nine years in the gospel of Matthew, eight or nine years preaching the book of Luke, several years in Mark, probably a total of four, five years in John, add it all together, 25 years of preaching through the four Gospels, and Christ is the theme of every verse and every paragraph and every chapter. Why so much about Christ? And then preaching the book of Romans, which is to understand the work of Christ, and Revelation, to understand the glory of Christ. Uh, why so much on Christ? Because He's the theme of everything. And the, the Old Testament is the anticipation of Christ. The Gospels are the incarnation of Christ. The book of Acts is the proclamation of Christ. The epistles are the explanation of Christ. And Revelation is the glorification of Christ. Do I get tired of preaching Christ? I can't get enough of it. Because there's no one so compelling. There's no one so magnificent. I don't love Him like I should, but I love Him 
And I have to sometimes say, like Peter did, Lord, you know my heart. You know I love you. Christ is precious to believers. And that means they don't want to dishonor Him. And that means they want to know Him and they want to commune with Him and spend time with Him and understand every single detail about Him. I mean, I wrote commentaries on all the books of the New Testament so that I could exhaust my understanding of Christ. And then a theology book, a big thick book which tries to break out every real spiritual truth that is connected to the glory of the gospel of Christ. And you can never get enough. I want to sing about Christ. I want to read about Christ. Put together a little book called One Perfect Life. I don't know if you've seen it. It takes the four gospels, combines them into one narrative, so you read it as one. There are a few days in my life that go by that I don't read it because I can never get enough of Him. Paul, as astute as he was, says, oh, that I may know Him. You say, Paul, (laughs) you know Him. You met Him on the Damascus Road. He took you off into the desert, and for three years He taught you in a one-on-one deal. He gave you three years, three years of instruction privately in the desert. You're a true apostle. They had three years, the original apostles had three years with Him in Judea and Galilee. You as an apostle got your own three years in the wilderness, three years with Christ, and He's appeared to you three or four times subsequently to that. You've had visions. In fact, you've had so many visions, the Lord had to give you a thorn in the flesh to keep you from being proud because you had so much communication with the glorified Christ. Isn't that enough? And He cries and says, that I may know Him, that I may know Him. He's inexhaustible. This is the life of a Christian in union with Christ, having constant access to God through Christ, secure in Christ and loving Christ. Now let's go back to our passage. And I wanted to reinforce those things. So if we don't get where, you know, I might have planned, that's fine. That was really very important, at least from my heart to yours. But I want to just point out a few other things. Um, Look with me at verse 9. We ended up at verse 8. You are a chosen race. Here's the fifth thing. This is the fifth privilege. You have been chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, if you're a Christian, you have been chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. Chosen. By the way, that is borrowed from the revelation of God in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when God was speaking to His people Israel. Listen to what Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 says, "'For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth.'" Stop right there and say, some people say, well, is that the doctrine of election? You bet. That is exactly what that is. Out of all the people on the earth, I chose you. The Lord didn't set His love on you, verse 7, or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. 
Why did God choose you? Because He loved you. And what that says is that God loved with a special love the people that He chose. Did you get that? God loved with a special love the people that He chose. And since He chose them before the foundation of the world, He loved them before the foundation of the world. Do you understand that before God created anything, He loved you and He determined to bring you to glory before there was ever you or anybody else? Talk about a privilege. Could you have had anything to do with that? You didn't exist. Nobody existed. Before the foundation of the world, He chose you. And then He wrote your name in the book of life before there was even a person. And for those He chose, He brought justification, sanctification, and glorification. If you're looking for a reason to worship, how about that one? Is that enough to set your heart loose? Before anyone existed, the Lord predetermined to set His love on you for no other reason than His own uninfluenced choice to love you. You're not many in number, but He chose to love you. This is to me the most worship-motivating of all truths. All the rest follows up on that reality. Your salvation is the result of your election. Now let's go to the end. That's the beginning chosen. Let's go to the end. Number six in my list, verse nine, you are a royal priesthood. Well, we already saw you're a priesthood, but this means you have dominion with Christ. You have dominion with Christ. You're not just a priesthood. You're a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, basileia. Earlier we saw a temple. We are built up as living stones on the cornerstone, the living stone Christ. Well, this, this temple of living stones just happens to be a palace. It happens to be a royal palace of priests. The spiritual home mentioned in verse 5 is a royal palace for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not just living stones built up as a holy temple unto Him, but we are His royal palace. And in that palace, we not only live with Him, we reign with Him. Scripture says we'll sit on His throne with Him in glory. Paul told the Ephesians we'll be seated with Him seated in the heavenlies. And where is He seated? At the right hand of the throne of God. Privilege? This is staggering privilege. And you have to connect election before the foundation of the world with coronation after the whole universe is dissolved and God creates a new heaven and a new earth. He chose you so that you would reign with Him forever. He chose you before you ever existed, so it had nothing to do with you but all to do with His own sovereign love. This is who you are. 
What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be in union with Christ, in sweet fellowship and having access through Him to God. It means to be safe in Him, secure in Him. It means to love Him. It means to have been chosen by Him and to be glorified with Him in the dominion that is to come in eternity. There's something else here, number seven in my little list. Look at the next phrase, verse 9, a holy nation, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What does that mean? It means that we are separated to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have any fellowship with darkness. There's no concord between Christ and Satan. We are a holy nation. Holy simply means separated. God is holy, holy, holy. That is to say, the holy, the first one refers perhaps to the Father, the second to the Son, and the third to the Spirit. Or all three refer to all three. But the point is this, God is most significantly defined as holy. No other attribute is repeated three times like that. It is to say that God is utterly separate from sin. We have then also been made a holy nation, a holy people, ethnos, people, people, a holy people. This talks about the reality of transformation that it's internal. This isn't the separation of the legalist. The legalist separates himself from evil externally. He doesn't do this and he doesn't do that. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with girls that do. You know, that kind of thing. He's got a, he's got a separation mentality on the outside because he's trying to prove a point. Paul was like that. That's how he basically lived his whole life. Based on the law, he was blameless, he says. He, he was separated. He was separated externally. That's what legalists are. And you can go further than that. You can be separated ascetically. You can be separated like a monk, go live in a cave and contemplate your navel and flagellate yourself and beat yourself up and bang your head against a wall and think somehow you're doing penance for your evil. It's not the separation of a legalist. It's not the separation of an ascetic. It's not the separation of a stoic. You can literally think that you can detach yourself from the world and shut down all your emotional responses like some... Buddhist who thinks himself into nothingness, that's a kind of mental separation. But this is a real internal separation from sin. And that's just another way of defining what it is to be one with Christ. We are united to the one who is himself righteous, who is himself righteous. We belong to Him, a people for God's own possession. You are my own possession, says the Lord in Exodus 19.5. You are my own possession. For us in the New Testament, we belong to Christ because He bought us with what? His own precious blood. Just a couple of more things to think about. Why? Why all this? This is staggering. Why is God so gracious to us? Why are we having all of this in Christ? 
so that, go to verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. What are the excellencies? What I've just described to you. All the things I've just described to you, those are the excellencies. All of these things, they're yours. They define who you are. They are your spiritual privileges in Christ so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, now you are the people of God, yet had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. So here's your first responsibility. All of this has happened to you so that you will proclaim these excellencies. Open your mouth and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But not just what you say. Look at verse 11, beloved. I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now hear not only what you say. But what you do, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent. You are proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Keep your behavior excellent among the nations in the world so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. So your life matters more than any life on the planet. Yours has eternal impact. You have received all the excellencies of Christ, and there are more, but you have received all the excellencies of Christ so that you may proclaim those excellencies. And so that, again in verse 12, so that you may, because of your good deeds, and your excellent behavior bring evildoers to glorify God in the day of visitation. You lead people to Christ. You have an impact on their eternity because of what you say and how you live. That is why the Lord has invested so much excellence in you. You are the instruments that He uses to bring people into His eternal kingdom. This kind of life is a worshiping life where Christ is everything. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful. We were a people who had not received mercy. We were lost in our sins. But You, before the foundation of the world, had already set Your love on us. And in time, the gospel came through some person or persons. And we heard, and You opened our hearts and gave us faith to believe. And then You joined us to Christ and You poured into us all His excellencies for the sole purpose that we might proclaim His excellencies and that we might live 
excellently, manifesting His very character so that we might bring evildoers to the place where they see and hear of Christ and glorify You. That is the reason we're in this world. True worshipers of Christ have powerful lives that change people's eternity. May we so live to Your glory. In our Savior's name, amen.